0: So just so you know we didn't skip it, we're going to turn to prayer in just a second, but I asked the team to, to give me the opportunity to kind of set the stage this morning, and, and here's why. Uh, we're finishing up our Faith Basics series, and the topic at hand is church. <laughs> the, the doctrine, what we would call ecclesiology, which is kind of the understanding theologically of what the church is and what it's supposed to be. But in the process of preparing this week, there's a, a weight that I couldn't unload through the context of my entire preparation. And so what I'm aware of, and that weight that, is, as best as I can capture it, is that I feel like there's a place that we're kind of, as we jump into this topic, we're, we're really legitimately stepping into a, a wealth of emotions that are associated with even that word church. Here's what I mean. I think two things will be happening simultaneously as we tackle this subject first and probably maybe most critically is that it comes with an association of a vast amount of wounds that you and I have walked through the through the course of our Christian journey. That there's been spaces as we think about church. We, we even have categories in our mind of that's a good church and that's a bad church. And often it's because of how we've experienced the people within the context of that body. There's wounds and areas of frustration that have existed that we still carry in the context of those things. And I think secondarily the reality is is that when we talk about church and we talk about the theology of what the the Bible gives us in terms of the context of church itself is really it taps against uh, areas of emotions and and sin that manifests itself in the, the context of a larger community of believers, meaning that as you talk about church or you say, How is your church described to me the church that you go to and likely you 'll get a lot of different answers not to well i uh, the preaching's okay, I don't really like the worship, or I wish they did this differently. Or... And so what ends up surfacing is a level of, of selfishness. I think even when we talk about this, pride and arrogance are, are really at the threshold. I'll even confess that oftentimes as we talk about the conversation with church, there's, there's bitterness at the, the doorway of our hearts as we think about different experiences that we've had. And so what ends up happening in the context of the discussion about church is the discussion gets hijacked by our own emotions and experiences. And so, as I'm gonna turn the prayer this morning, I'm gonna ask uh, you to, to consider one thing. As we talk about these things, what the desire is, is that the truth of God would direct the conversation, not our emotions. Meaning that there's a sense in which the desire is that the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would begin to redeem those areas of our heart that have a tendency to filter or cause a lack of clarity as to what the church is or even how God has called the church to exist. What's, what's the purpose behind it? We think about the words that are used theologically in terms of the invisible church and the visible church. And Jared did a great job last week talking about our union with Christ. I want to suggest to you this morning is the thesis for this whole thing, that if you're united with Christ through faith in him, you are also united with his church. That the Bible uses terminology regularly talking about the body of Christ. That united with Christ means you're also united with his people. That in the process of those things, the areas of abrasion or challenge or friction that exist in the context of relationships with fellow believers are for, in part, the purpose of helping us recognize areas that need or that God is changing inside of us and allowing us to be aware of those places that we are actually trying to have the church look in our image rather than the image of God. and so we're pressing against a lot of very significant areas. And I think the weight this morning for me is there's a sense in which I'm I'm walking through a minefield. I know some of your stories about church and experiences and some of the hurts and the challenges that you walk through, but I certainly don't know them all or even the fullness of what you and I might wrestle with on a daily basis when we think about church, when we think about the body of Christ. Augustine said it this way. There is no salvation outside the church. I think what he's getting at really in the context of those things is that the the substance of who we are, we've been fashioned and as we're united with Christ, we're united with his body, we're united with other believers. And there's the visible church that we see of those who profess faith, but then there's the reality of the invisible church that is actually those who've truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ and are, desiring to be changed by him and walking with him throughout the course of their entire life. We're going to be jumping in in part at the beginning of our message to Matthew 16. And in the process of that, let me give you just a a category for what we talk about church and and even as we understand this theologically is it's called the law of first mention. And what that means is that the the first time the word is used in the scriptures, it's likely that which sets the paradigm, the framework, and the foundation for which we understand every subsequent uses of that word. Matthew 16 is the law of first mention. The, The first time the word ecclesia, the first time church is used in the scriptures. And it, it's gonna set the, the paradigm, the framework from which we understand what church is supposed to be, what God has designed the church to be, even how to anticipate his work. But in the process of what I'm asking, or what I think, honestly, it's not me, but what I think the scriptures are asking, is there's a fundamental question that we have to answer on two different levels, personally and corporately. And that, that question is gonna come out in Matthew 16. And it's ultimately, who do you say Christ is? Because there's a level of authority that Christ has not over our own lives, but also over his church and his body. And so in the process of those things, you would anticipate like in anything else, that which has authority over us can also give us wisdom and analysis and an understanding of how we're called to live. Like there's an authority to to call us to to address areas of of sin and dysfunction and, and wrong thinking in our lives and also bring to life that which is of God and which is good and worthy of praise and development. Both of those things are happening as we seek to answer that question. So in the process of this, I'm asking you both personally and corporately to consider the reality of the challenge this morning, this morning of how we not only understand church, but how we understand Christ's church and who he's calling us to be and how he's calling us to live in the the framework from which he set those things up. And so I would anticipate that as we have this discussion, there will likely be moments of uncomfortability. And there were for me even walking through this, because I can't say that we've fully, totally figured it out. In the process of those things, what the desire is is to surrender to those uncomfortable moments, because that's the very space the Lord is working. That's the very place that the Lord is drawing us to Himself. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come uh, and we want to attend seriously to the study of Your Word. We believe that it speaks and is the source of all truth, that it gives us everything we need for faith and practice. We, we understand that what it communicates to us is, is the reality of the way things are not the way that we want them to be. And often there is some uh, dilemma or some competition in our hearts between your work and our desire between your prescriptions and our preferences. And so Lord, we need and desire as best as we can to surrender to you this morning. Father, we we long for you to be that which directs our understanding. And if there are sources of sin in each of our hearts that lead to selfishness, pride, arrogance, preferences, whatever it might be, God, we we ask that you would give us the strength to lay that down. And in those places where you're calling us to, to bring to life that which is of you, God, would you show us those things. We believe that your church is your church, and we are a local manifestation of that here at Park Springs Bible. We desire to be faithful to you, God, and so we pray that you would even marshal the resources of heaven to give us wisdom as we seek to honor you with how we function as a body of believers. We ask all of these things in Christ's name, amen. All right. So now that I've given enough preference, you know, kind of kind of set the stage for you and maybe with some severity and some weight kind of led us to that place. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to be jumping into verse 13 through verse 20 as kind of an entry point for the discussion. And like I said, when we talk about the law of first mention, this is the first time uh, the word ecclesia is used specifically in the New Testament, and it's a it's a it's a it's a robust substantive understanding. And it's not only important of the context in which it's used, but also how and who uses it. And so let me read the scripture for us this morning, Matthew chapter sixteen, starting in verse thirteen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build, here it is, my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, just at the o- onset, right? It's a, it's an intriguing passage because the, the whole discussion is framed around the uh, understanding of, of who Christ is both the confusion of who Christ is and the certainty of who Christ is. And so this, this sort of mixture of perspectives on who Jesus is really does set the lenses or the framework for how we understand church. If we don't understand Christ accurately, we certainly will never understand his church. If we don't know the substance of what Christ is doing, we are limited in our understanding of what we can expect as a body of believers assembles together to be that which represents the ecclesia, the church, which in Greek means sent ones. Those who were sent by God to proclaim and communicate the truth of the gospel. And so at its very core, the central question that everyone faces and every church faces is, who do you say the Son of Man is? And this is a central question for us being able to understand the church is, is who do you say the Son of Man is? Is. And, and we can see it across the board, right? You, you look at churches that maybe veer towards the prosperity gospel and, and here's what they'd say. Well, the son of man is a, a benevolent God who just gives us everything that we ask for so that in this earth we're, we're filled with the treasures of this world and, and, and all we need is just more faith to be able to have all the things that we need, right? There's a, that's a framework for how individuals understand God. You have other churches, maybe on the far side of progressive theology that would suggest, well, well, God, I see God, I see Christ as someone who is just infinitely tolerant of all things. And so it doesn't really matter. As long as we say we believe, then there's really no other categories for how we're called to, to live. And so there's really no standards per se. It's just about saying we believe. We can see, I mean obviously on the far spectrum of all of those things that, that misunderstanding the reality of Christ misunderstands the truth and the nature of the church. And so that's the question that I think you and I must face both personally and corporately this morning. Who do we say Christ is? And here's where it starts to get a little bit dicey. <laughs> because in the context of our own American evangelicalism, there is a sense in which we have different perspectives of what we think church should be preferences and desires, political leanings, desires and longings for things to look a certain way. And so what ends up happening is we sort of hijack the nature of who Christ is by wanting Christ to look and do specific things in specific ways for us to feel like the church is being the church. And so I I wanna ask that we actually set um, our desires down and allow Christ to be the one that directs our understanding of the church. And so here's what he says, which is absolutely essential, is that Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That profession, is the profession of the gospel by which we would understand the basis of the church is being built. That profession that Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God, like this is the foundation in which Christ builds his church. So if that's true, then what we would say is that at the, at the very basic level, a church is a church when it proclaims the truth of the gospel. It's got to be clear on the reality of who Christ is and who Christ is, is not only just the second person of the Trinity, that which has been, uh, that he emptied himself, took the form of a man and allowed us to experience union and adoption through his death and subsequent resurrection. That he's paved the way for intimacy with him, that we are in the body of Christ and united with Christ and united with his body because of his saving, purposeful rescue of our lives. So the church is a, proclaiming church and and a church that proclaims the truth of the gospel. But he says this, blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock, on this profession, on the reality of who Christ is, I will build my church. And then look at this, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Interesting addition or element to the reality of of the building of the church. Remember, we talk about the law of first mention. We begin to grow in the sense that there are expectations or understandings on which this profession of faith in Christ has implications for how we live in the world. The story is told, or not story, but historically, there's individuals or countries that have embassies all over the world. The United States has an embassy in a lot of different countries and and different nations. Here's what you need to know about an embassy. It's a sovereign territory in a foreign nation, which means that it operates based on the rules and regulations of its home country. So if you're in a political situation or in trouble in a foreign country, the first place you wanna go is to the embassy because the rules and regulations of the United States of America function within the context of that embassy. Tony Evans says it this way. It's a little bit of heaven a long way from home. That, that's the church. That's essentially what he's saying is that there's a, a set of regulations, a set of understandings of how things operate that God has positioned us to be in the context of a world that doesn't operate by the same standards. The world is being consistent with the decisions that it makes and how it lives its life based on its own desires and cultural perspectives and understandings. It's the church that's set up to be in enemy territory, to function as though the rules of heaven, the regulations of heaven, the desires of heaven function on the earth and we as body of believers function in that way with the anticipation that what we're doing is we're, we're actually living as though our home is not this world. That, that when, when Jesus says that, that on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think one of the categories that we need to understand is that, that Christ will build his church in enemy territory, expecting assault that part of what the church is, is to be a place where the truths and the realities of God himself are operating in its midst, as a way in which to communicate the reality of an otherworldly perspective that communicates the saving power of Christ to the world around us, and in so doing, the goal is not to get the world to look like the church, the goal is to communicate the saving power of the gospel to those who are broken and lost. You know, we have this understanding that there is a, a level of assault and spiritual reality that exists around us, and I think so often in our lives, we're so worried that the church isn't fighting the right fights and the fights that they should be fighting are earthly fights that are dealing with specific situations and tendencies. And, and you know, we, we always protest the sins that we don't struggle with. Right? And so it's, it's this place where we're really fighting to try and get things to look like we want it to look when in reality, the church is built on the profession and the proclamation of the gospel. Meaning that here's what we say at the very core essence when we talk about church, that every individual is broken and lost in sin, that every person that marks all of humanity is created in the image of God, and that the best thing that could ever happen in this life for them is to come to faith in Christ. And the same is true for you. (laughs) And here's the other aspect of the gospel that just because we professed faith in Jesus Christ does not need, mean that we don't daily need rescuing. That there's a, there's a reality and an assault of supernatural powers that are seeking to prevail over the proclamation and the substance of what the church is. And yet what we're doing here is beginning to understand that, that how do you know the church is in existence? And how do you know the church is functioning in a healthy way? Well, hell's not winning. And and how many of us wanna look at the society around us and make the implication that it is? Here's what I want us to ask. On a personal level, when we think about what we're fighting for, are we hoping that the world looks like what we want it to look and then make the extrapolation that the church is actually doing what the church should be doing? Or do we realize that God has placed us in enemy territory and we're armed with the truth of the gospel that the deepest desire we have is that those who don't know Jesus come to faith in him? That every person on the face of this planet has to answer this very same question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who? How do you process the reality of who Christ is? And so what I'd like to say and what I really want to push us to is I think that there are fundamentally two elements that at their very core are what the church must be about. And those two elements are being a place where those who have faith in Jesus Christ are constantly being made aware of where they're growing, where God is growing them in their own walk with Christ. So discipleship, Colossians tells us that our desire is to present everyone mature in Christ. And so there's a level, we say it in our uh, invocation every time, that that we want to be that place where whatever you're struggling with, there's an openness and a safety to walk into this place and realize that you can meet Jesus. And in the meeting of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel daily, you are being changed. And I will confess to you as well as confess for you that you need to be changed. And so do I. There are besetting sins and habits and bitterness and functionalities and things that are taking place in our life that are absolutely inhibiting the work of God in our life. There's selfishness and patterns of sin and areas of struggle in the context of our life that we need the rescuing, saving power of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is to begin the process and continue the process of changing us. We need to admit that the reality is is that we don't have all of church totally figured out and that we're doing it perfectly here at Park Springs because frankly we're not, we're not. We realize that we need Christ to be Christ and he needs to be in the process of changing us on a regular basis so humility is the result, not pride or arrogance. Look what he says in this text. He says, on this rock I will build what? My My church. The ownership of the church belongs to Christ. The church will not be built on celebrity pastors. It will not be uh, built on those who write numerous books, although not necessarily a bad thing. The substance of how the church is built is built on Christ alone. It's his, he has ownership over it. It is not on some popularity contest or whether we got the perfect pastor here and thankfully you guys don't, but whatever it is, there is still this sense that, that what we really begin to understand is that Christ is building his church, that we're submitting ourselves to the truth of God's word. And in the process of those things, there's continual places of change that need to occur that God is doing as he authors the church, but we can't give up on one another. You're united with Christ. You're united with his body. Like there is a place in which we realize that as we're connected with the body of Christ, that God is working through those levels of friction and challenge and abrasion and recognizing the preferences that each of us have in the context of our own family situation. But in the process of those things, we realize that even as we understand our preferences, there's a sense in which we are so convinced of the work of Christ in each other's lives that we're in. And we're in, in because we can't wait to see how God is going to dismantle some level of sinful habits in each other's lives. And we get a front row seat of the privilege of seeing the gospel work in each other's lives. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than to partner our lives with individuals and to say, I know how deep and dark the darkness is, the cesspool of your life. I understand how hard it is. And I don't have all these quick fixes. There's not some special pill, but here's what I do know. The gospel is greater and more powerful than the sin and the struggles you're in right now. And I am in. I will attach my life to yours. And I cannot wait to see how God is going to work in innumerable ways in your life. And it might take your entire life for you to find liberation and freedom from the besetting sins and struggles. But as long as I'm here, I'm in, because I believe in the church. I love the church. I believe it's God's plan. A, I don't think that there's something else that we could invent that would be like, okay, that's better. God has a plan for his church, and that church is built on the proclamation of the gospel. And so here's what we get. We get this reality that God sets it up in enemy territory, and then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then he tells us something else unique. He says, uh, build my church on this rock and the gates of will not prevail against it. Then he says what? I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, that's kind of tricky business. I mean, what's he talking about here? And so what keys mean access. And so what he's saying really, I think is what he's, he's flushing out the Lord's prayer, right? Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think what he's getting at in the context of these things is that there's an understanding that as the church grows and functions as a church, it operates the way that heaven operates. It grows in the understanding of that which is of God becomes that, which is of the people of God. We reflect that which is kingdom mentality, the understanding of how God works and how God operates. Let me just give you one example right? We see ourselves and we know our journey. We are fully aware of the frailties and the failures, maybe not fully, but we are at least in part aware of those areas of sin and dysfunction in all of our lives. And we're aware of it in each other's lives as well, that there are places where we just get tripped up. How does heaven operate in the midst of radical catastrophic brokenness? Well, it operates by us being able to look at the reality that the pursuing nature of God sent Christ to the cross to die on behalf of sin-sick sinners so that they could find not just salvation and rescue from their sin, but they could find adoption and union with Christ, that they are given intimacy with the God of the universe forever so that their identity is not their sin, their identity is their salvation. Jesus is my salvation. He didn't just give it to me like Jared said last week. There is so much fullness and understanding that as heaven operates, it sees the value and dignity of one another and the story that God is writing that then blossoms into this beautiful reality that there is no one too far away from the reach of the grace of Christ. So in the process of that, That means that the church is fundamentally about each and every one of us growing in our intimacy with Christ. We wanna understand how we're called to mature and reflect the glory of God. But then secondarily, a church must, must, must care about the lost, evangelism, is an essential component of this proclamation of the gospel that there is a sense in which we can't arbitrarily look at the scope of the world and the billions of people that exist on the planet that don't know Jesus and has never heard his name uttered and be like, someone will get there. Let's hope it all works out. No, we need to be riveted with the reality that there are billions of people in this moment destined for hell that they could live apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ and that somehow in some way they had not been told and not experienced the truth and the value. We must be a church that is a church by being the ecclesia, the sent ones. Those who are so convinced that in our community, nation and world, our neighbors, our friends and people across the pond absolutely need to experience the love of Christ otherwise we only look at ourselves and think okay well i'm growing and hopefully someone else will go that's why we do mission trips that's why we send people to the furthest reaches of the world. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we ask and pray regularly as a staff that God would raise up missionaries from our midst. That's why we're always looking for any opportunity that the Lord might present us to be able to go and share the life transforming power of Jesus Christ with the world. Our motto, our, our thought internally is it's always yes, unless God says no. Always yes. Should I talk to the neighbor across the street? Yes. Should I? Be kind and gracious and ask if the, the waitress or the waiter needs prayer as I order my food, yes. Should I seek that my family members and loved ones who don't know Jesus, should I, should I tell them one more time that Jesus cares deeply about them in significant? yes. Should I go, yes. Wherever the Lord is compelling, we're moving to those places of realizing that the significance of who we are is our identity is in Christ and Christ alone and that he's positioned us in everybody's life that surrounds our own sphere as an opportunity for us to be ambassadors for the truth of Christ in their lives. Your coworkers that don't know Jesus, do they need Jesus? Yes. Is it what they need more than anything else? Yes. Is your work hard and your boss terrible? Now, I'm not talking about the staff think I'm awesome, so it can't be about that. But whatever it is, right, that there is not a moment where we are not that which is called to reflect the standards and the desires of heaven. And so what God is communicating here when he talks about the church and even the proclamation of the gospel is that what, what, what we're moving towards as the church functions in the church is that we're, we're operating as a little bit of heaven a, a long way from home. That This is really who God has called us to be. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with something I just came across, but it's June, June 29th and it's called the day of the Christian martyr. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it was used to actually commemorate the church's tradition. when they thought the apostle Paul was martyred and in the process, the voice of the martyrs does significant stories throughout the, the context of, of those who've been martyred for their faith in the modern day. Gentleman named John Chow, a few years ago, was just compelled and felt called to to share the gospel with an unreached island 70 miles off the coast of India. And it wasn't as though he just decided, well, God's called me, so I'm gonna pack up and go. He spent nine years preparing. He got his um, uh, certification in uh, emergency medicine so that if there was something that was going on, he would be able to help them right off the bat. In the process of that, he learned and began to grow in understanding their language. They had been, the Sentinelese individuals had been totally and completely hostile to any foreigner that would show foot on the land. He made his way one day, and a young boy with a bow and arrow saw him and pulled back and shot, and an arrow landed in his leg. He went home, and on his way back, Uh, he still felt compelled to go and make inroads with these people's lives. And as he's writing, literally his final journal entry, he's writing to his family. He's saying, you know, I don't want you to be angry with these people. If I die, nor do I want you to be angry with me. And here's what he said, the only success that we understand in the kingdom or the key to success in the kingdom of God is only obedience and he goes. And then as, he's, as the, the boat driver is pulling away and left him uh, and starts to circle the island and see, um, it wasn't but a few hours later that they see him bearing his body on the beach. Didn't make much inroads. It wasn't feeling like there was really a lot of change or transformation, but there was a level of faithfulness to desire to honor the Lord Jesus and leverage his life for the sake of the gospel. Your life matters, you've been saved for a purpose, and your purpose is to experience your identity in Christ, and then also to proclaim the life-transforming power of the gospel to the world. So if many of us this morning have started to activate our inner lawyer, as Paul David Tripp would say, or activate our inner law firm, as in my own heart, to find myself defensive about feeling like, well, let me give you my resume about what I am doing, Instead, what, what I'd like to do is just, just ask. As we think about who Christ is, who do you say Christ is? Would you be willing to ask what sort of preferences have impeded onto that understanding? That often we don't let Christ speak for himself, we, we add things to it. And so in the process, Christ of our own making versus Christ of the scriptures. Where, so let me, let me give you this. What, where primarily does active combat occur? When, when I mean that, I mean like where God has planted his church as an enemy territory. The two places of active combat are this. The place where God is growing us, and the places where God is con- currently being resisted. Discipleship and evangelism. So, I'm gonna finish off with this, and I thought it would be an intriguing thing. God had sort of laid it on my heart as I was studying. And I thought, well, let's just look. Maybe there's some test cases of, churches within the context of the scriptures that um, maybe would be a good indication of entry points of where we might need to wrestle with where we need to be changed or how God is changing and forming and fashioning us. Funny enough, there is seven of them in the book of revelation. (laughs) There are seven churches that God begins to address in very specific ways. And he uses the term churches right? Ecclesia, those who were sent One, So we're we're getting sort of this fast track of looking at a church and these churches that have been built by Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. And we're looking back on their experience and we're getting this sense of, okay, as God makes an analysis of how you functioned as a body of believers, here's where you might want to uh, spend some time considering where you've, done things well and where things have gone awry. Revelation chapter two starts it off and verses one through seven talks about the church of Ephesus. And I'm not going to read all of the scriptures because I'm running out of time, but the church in Ephesus, here's the analysis and subsequent indictment. You have great theology, but loveless worship. You have great theology, You can parse every word in the Bible. You know, doctrine well, but you have not allowed the Lord to parse your heart. You can have good doctrine and loveless worship and be in trouble. You can know the content of the scriptures and yet resist being known by the content of the scriptures. You can open the Bible and not let the Bible open you. You can have good doctrine and loveless worship. You would rather parade your knowledge than prostrate your heart before the king. That significant area of something that is worth considering. Revelation chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 is the church in Smyrna. Here's what he says, tribulation and poverty have marked your journey. You've had it hard. Things have been difficult. You look back on your life. You felt like you've been limited and resources and things just continue to get worse, but fear sinks to govern your heart. Fear has taken over in such a way that you're worried because you've dealt with just this place where God is maybe only provided for you moment by moment. You're so certain that somehow you could lose the very little you have, that fear has settled into your life and absolutely captivated every aspect of your worship. You were so worried about losing the little you have, that you have failed to realize the riches you've been given in Christ. Stinging indictment. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is the church at Pergamum. Here's what he says to them. You've been planted in enemy territory. There's a fight that's chronically going on. And you hold to the faith, but you've started to try and meet your own needs. You've found yourself fighting the right fights, but yet you're now strategizing about ways in which you need to do what you need to do to get the outcome. You think that you should versus the reality that you've been planted in every territory, you're fighting the right fights. God is the source of your resources and he's your only hope. Like look to Christ, not to your own abilities to fix problems. Look to Christ. Boy, that's, it's a great analysis of church as a whole but also some level of diagnosis of our own heart revelation 2 verses 18 through 29 is the church at thyatira you're growing he says but you've tolerated some toxic alliances you've just let some things slide you've done well you're growing in your faith but as you grow you found yourself wrestling with not wanting to deal with the challenges that sin brings to the table. And you've just been okay with things that God's not okay with. Be aware, return, listen. Let Your eyes see and your ears hear the truth of God's word. Revelation chapter three, verses one through six is the church at Sard- Sardis. Here's an awesome one. <laughs> you look alive, but you're dead. Things have the appearance of vitality in the context of the church. You're able to worship. You're able to raise your hands. You're able to sing songs. You're able to go to Bible studies and hear all of these things. And yet you go home and habitual sin is taking over your life. You find yourself aggressively dealing with complaining and chronic challenges. You find yourself so convinced that if you just keep up the veneer of the Christian walk, that somehow life will show up if you just keep doing it. And yet the reality is that death has entered in. There's a deadness to your spirituality and your walk with the Lord, lay it down. Life is found in Christ, not in the false veneer. No need to fake it any longer. Trust the truth of who Christ is and live authentically and openly before the king. Here's the good one. Revelation 3, 7 through 13, the church at Philadelphia. Here's what he says to them. In your great weariness, you've remained faithful. (laughs) Living in enemy territory takes its beating. (laughs) It takes a toll. You're tired. I I see that. The gaze of God is not off of you you've chosen faithfulness. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. The church at Laodicea, here's what he says. <laughs> you're lukewarm. He says, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Uh, here's what he says, I think ultimately, is that pride is blinded you to your own blindness. You're okay with apathy. You're okay with wanting things the way that you want them. You think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. You wanna keep the context of the way that you want things to operate. The thought of sacrifice or service to others at the expense of what you currently have seems uh, impossible to you. You wanna keep what you have and not be challenged to move to places that are totally uncertain. Familiarity is better than challenge. And so what ends up finding itself in its way into their worship is complacency. They're just okay. Sunday morning life, <laughs> they're okay with showing up and having a general experience, but, but never really being on fire for the Lord. The church is God's church, built by Christ, and on the profession of the truth of the gospel, those two things are what mark the church. Growing believers who are convinced that they're willing to submit their lives to the truth of God's word, and a passion for those who don't know Jesus. There's the question this morning. As we turn to worship in these next two songs, I'm just gonna ask you to wrestle with that. Who, who do you, literally, honestly, who do you say Christ is? And then after we sing those two songs, we're gonna be celebrating and sending a missions team out to Albania. But at the end of the service, our elders and their wives will be coming up front to pray with you. If you have never answered the question of who Christ is for your own life, I'm gonna invite you to come forward. Ask the questions, allow us to pray for you. Answer that question this morning because it's that urgent. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. Today is the day that God has provided for salvation. Would you pray with me?